0: As I was heading out the door, you know, I had this dress on. It was my first time wearing it. I loved it. It was so beautiful. And then my four-year-old comes and gives me a big bear hug and like buries his face and my um, leg and removes his face in like the syrup from his waffle knife. Oh, no. Where there's like a oh. face print. Oh like, <laughs> my So these are all these just like basic like motherhood stuff. And things that I used to roll my eyes at before I had kids. I feel like I've become that cliche of a mom who has these kinds of stories. But I think it is, it's is—it's also really quite telling, like the different hats that we wear and the different spaces that we occupy.
1: with thanks to Bailey's. This is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season six of Bookshelfy, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. Join me and my incredible guests as we talk about the books you'll be adding to your 2023 reading list. I am delighted to
2: have Kenya Hunt, the editor-in-chief of L.U.K., on the podcast today. Kenya is an award-winning American journalist who's now been working in the U.K. for a decade. Her career spans working for some of the most influential women's publications on both sides of the Atlantic. From her postgraduate days as an assistant editor at the seminal magazine, Jane, To her time as deputy editor of Grazia EK. Kenya is also the author of Girl, 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 Girls on Womanhood and Belonging in the Age of Black Girl Magic, which is brilliant. If you haven't read it, definitely check it out. And in 2021, she was recognised by the British Fashion Council for her work with the Global Leader of Change Awards. Welcome to the podcast, Kenya.
0: Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. We've chatted before,
2: not to big up another podcast at all, but I do another um, podcast about black music. and We've chatted about
0: your lives and the music that you love and has shaped you as you've grown up. But now we get to talk about books, which is uh, honestly my two favourite things, music and book, my happy place. So yeah, it's a real thrilling uh, experience to be here sitting with you today. You were
2: saying before um, we began recording that There's something very special about getting to have those conversations about literature or or even you know nonfiction. Why why do you love that so much?
0: Well, for me, when I'm home, like doing anything that doesn't you know require a screen, I love to put on a podcast and listen to an author talk about writing. It's my happy place. I love books. I love to read and I love to listen to writers talking about writing. And that might be kind of a navel gazy thing as a as a writer as a journalist, but to me, it's such a a happy place like books and and when I lived in New York I used to love to go to the 92nd uh, Street Y and just hear authors talk it's one of my favorite things to do so it's yeah it's just a really nice treat to to sit here with you after having listened to like previous episodes that you've done and you know y- your past seasons and having enjoyed them I feel like there's something about when you hear an that and I think particularly obviously this podcast is about
2: um, women who lie yeah you know, there is so much that you take away I come away from every single recording with a little piece of advice or an experience that I've heard that's really resonated, or even just a recommendation for a book, but it really feels like I needed it. You know, like if I yeah. I can wear I, I always say I wear on my neck like a pearl, like yeah. it's, it's a pearl of wisdom. Hearing these women talk that thing, but I need it to hear sometimes.
0: Yeah. And I think that is also how I view reading, you know, like number one, it's a portal to a different world, like it's a you know, a source of entertainment. But also, I think it's a way of helping to make sense of the world. And so oftentimes, like some of the books that I chose when I read them, and I keep revisiting them over and over again, because I feel like there are certain messages embedded in the the narratives that have, you know, resonated with me. You know, they were messages I needed to hear in a time, or they had messages that have really been the making of me, that I keep with me, that have never left me, or and ones that I just continue to revisit. when I'm in sticky periods, and I feel like I need some clarity and things like that. And so I think that's, you know, a really strong book, a novel or a work of nonfiction, you know, it tells a, a really compelling story that captures your attention, but also it can just unlock a different way of looking at the world, which is why I love, like, just having that un- uninterrupted time to read. So I'm counting down when I could, like, really, like, get into my summer books that, mm, yeah, because I am talking to you at a point at which
2: you have a lot of work on because it's getting all in before you go away. So are you, I mean, I'm sure you read a lot for work, but also, you know, when you have your downtime, what does reading mean to you? What quick books do you gravitate towards?
0: I tend to gravitate towards books by women, books by women of color. I love fiction, you know, literary fiction, narrative nonfiction, but it really kind of runs the gamut. I've never been a big science fiction person. But I love Octavia Butler. So sometimes there's an author who will be my gateway into a genre that I don't necessarily tend to gravitate towards and things like that. But I think it's definitely the stories of women in particular that I tend to gravitate towards. I often, you know, I find that I connect with stories where I can see like little seeds of myself or there's experiences that I can relate to. And most often those are, you know, written by women.
2: Yeah, you said about the way a good book, a strong book can change your perception of the world. I would say the best books are those that change the way you look at the world, but also change the way you look at yourself. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the books that have done just that for you. Your 1st book, Shelfie book, Kenya, is All About Love by Bell Hicks. Beautiful, an enduring classic by an iconic author. This is the acclaimed first volume in the Love Song to the Nation trilogy. This book looks into what causes a polarized society and how to heal the divisions and instill caring compassion and strength in our homes, schools and workplaces.
0: I mean, I think Bell Hooks is just one of those foundational voices in Black feminist thought. And so for me, she was very much, you know, I before I had the language to really articulate my feelings and opinions around feminism, it was women like uh, or people like Bell Hooks who really introduced me to a way of thinking and also helped me understand myself and my sort of sense of selfhood growing into my own sense of selfhood and black womanhood um, but also the power of her essays you know as a journalist essays is such a big part of what we do at you know women's media and also women's magazines historically i think bell hooks and then people like susan suntag and john didion and, and tony morrison you know th- they were the women who really converted me to the the power of the essay as a form and as a medium and and that sense of like shorter form writing compared to a book but also how um it can be like something that responds to culture but also at the same time a driver of culture but i think with bell hooks in particular i found myself gravitating towards all about love returning to it a lot during covid because things did feel so fraught and polarized and it was such a really kind of unnerving period I really love that idea of leading with love Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and also exploring like all the many facets of love and the different kinds of ways that we love rather than just focusing purely on the romantic. And I think she does that so beautifully, even for me. Like I love writing. I love the work that I do. Like, what does that mean to lead with love, even in your career? Like these spaces where we tend to compartmentalize and um, section things. And you just think one precludes the other, like the two can't coexist for instance. And so I I loved her writing because it really helped me sort of make sense of the way that I move in the world and my feelings about my own outfit, the work that I do, but also like the legacy I want to leave behind, like the kind of work I want to leave out there in the world. But I think, yeah, I mean, this one, is, it is a real foundational text. It had a whole life on TikTok. talk, you know, has been obsessed with All About Love for a while. It's one of those books that you see shared next to like a cup of coffee. Yeah, with like the heart,
2: okay. the, the Instagram poets as well, Leanne, fill out the
0: quotes. And I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad at that either. <laughs> Let it live a long, long life. I think, yeah, we could use some more. more of that in the world. She does challenge this
2: traditional um, notion of romantic love as being the cornerstone of what love is. Yes,
0: what is love? For? What is love to you, Ken? Um I think for me, love is, I mean, it, it means... So many things, you know, I had two small children so lately, and as they grow, I've been thinking about a lot about love within the context of motherhood and selflessness and what that means and also how it really creates a heightened sense of purpose. Like it, it drives a different sense of purpose when you're responsible for another life, you know, in this world and also like integrity and our values and all of those things are very much sort of wrapped up in, in love with me. But also, you know, bell hooks, talked about this idea of sort of radical acceptance and the ways that we accept the flaws in one another and the ways that we interact with each other. Because I think especially now in this age of social media, you can encounter divisions or blockages with people and it can be so easy to sort of shut that person off or the idea off or just surround ourselves with exactly what we want and need at the time. I think there's value in that, but also on a relationship level, what does it mean to accept ourselves, but also to accept other people while at the same time keeping our best interests at heart. Relationships can be a minefield, you know, no romantic relationships, relationships with family, relationships, with colleagues. And so how do you navigate that with your sense of self-love intact, mm-hmm. but also with your sense of love for community and the greater good? And so I think these are all things, especially in this stage of my life, you know, with the roles that I occupy at work and then at home with my kids. These are the things that I think about a lot. Um, And so this is why I found myself like returning to this book so much.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned the roles that you play and the love that you have to give in these different stages of your life from being a mother, from being in the home to being at work. Do you feel like your character changes as you navigate these spaces? How do you
0: get into these ahead spaces? I get, does my character change? I don't know. I, my circumstances change. Yeah. I mean, I think a classic point is Sunday, I was at a very lovely moment for work with Cartier at a Goodwood Festival. And so that's a very, um, you know, one might say it's a very kind of glamorous setting yeah. where you're surrounded by, you know, people who you might recognize from like film and television. And then I go straight home and my son has uh, a stomach bug. Oh, no. <laughs> Or even before, as I was heading out the door, you know, I had this dress on. It was my first time wearing it. I loved it. It was so beautiful. And then my four-year-old comes and gives me a big bear hug. and like, buries his face in my um, leg and removes his face in, like, the syrup from his waffle knife. There's <laughs> a face print. out my like, <laughs> so these are, all these is, like, basic, like, motherhood stuff and things that I used to roll my eyes at before I had kids. I feel like I've become that cliche of a mom who has these kinds of stories. But I think it is—it's also really quite telling, like the different hats that we wear and the different spaces that we occupy. But I like it as well because I think we do contain multitudes. Like we're never just one thing. And so this, like, they humble me consistently all the time. So I can't like get you too used to the luxury bubble because then I'm gonna get back home and they're gonna be like, my uniform needs to be ironed. But you know that sort of thing.
2: Talking of those different hats that you wear, um, I know you grew up a classically trained dancer and then, you know, made this career change to to move into journalism. How did that
0: happen? So a part of it, you know, I have to say my mother, being the um, pragmatic woman she is, she really nurtured and encouraged my passion and drive for the world of arts, you know, for dance in particular. Like I was that child who would live in a leotard like I ate, slept, and breathed classical dance. I was obsessed with George Balanchine and Alvin Ailey and all of that. But also at the same time, she really kind of nurtured and fostered my love of reading and books. Like she really, I think with her, she was really pragmatic. She was like, you can pursue the world of professional dance, but there will eventually be a point where your body will stop cooperating. Like you'll have a shorter window. And so she just kind of sort of gently, you know, helping you sort of see the promise of other sort of areas. But I think more than my mom's words it was me moving to new york and doing them both she said you know give it a try like you know see how it goes so i moved to new york and i studied i you know i had a period where i was studying at alvin ailey in new york and i had i did their summer intensives and then i auditioned and danced and, and and was in that world working in their back office while like taking classes and all of that stuff and i began to see you know, the possibilities of, like, the different avenues that I could take in the the directions I could go in. And so I started interning at the same time at various magazines and newspapers, and I just realized I really love this. Like, I love this world. I love storytelling, and I really want to try my hand at you know, I want to take the path of being an editor. And so I think that that love sort of overtook the other. But it's really quite a punishing life as a dancer. The beautiful thing to realize, I can have... Multitude
2: of love, yeah. In the same way that we can be a multitude of women, yeah, be multifaceted. We can love so much, and what glorious thing that is!
0: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have trade. I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. Like, I'm so glad that I had it. I'm glad that I took that time in New York to do it. And um, also, I think it was really quite a transformative one for me because it made me see that you can do multiple things. (laughs) I think that's kind of stayed with me. That way of operating has never really left me, to be honest. Let's first talk about your second book
2: now, which is The Flagellants by Carleen Hatcher-Polite. Originally published in 1967, the debut novel from the feminist and civil rights activist interrogates the violent conflicts at the intersection of race and gender. It follows Ideal and Jimson, a young black couple living in New York City, whose escalating verbal and physical clashes reflect the casual brutality inflicted on African Americans. Now, The New York Times Book Review noted on its publication that this book was among the first fictional works by a Black woman to focus directly on the theme of the sometimes very bitter antagonism between Black men and women. Was this a theme that interested you? You
0: know, it was less the theme and more so her story. So Carleen, number one, The Flagellants is one of those forgotten books. So whenever I'm asked about you know, the books that had an impact on me, I love to pull this out because it's one of those books that has been forgotten. And I don't think it's, I think more people need to know about it and her. So she only wrote two novels. She was a professional dancer. Mm -hmm. um, And then she moved to Paris and wrote this novel. And her personal story struck me. I think it was just such a beautiful example of the ways that we can occupy different spaces I think the fact that she started out as a dancer, she had this vision for herself, she she moved to Paris, she lived a life as an author, then she settled in Buffalo, where she taught creative writing. The, I think there's something about that, because I think sometimes as women, and I think particularly women from marginalized backgrounds or Black women, you can sort of, at an early age when you're in school, you can be told, okay, this is the path that you should consider, or this, I remember being in school, at university, and the professor went around the room and asked us what we all wanted to do when we graduated. And I said I wanted to move to New York and be an editor. Um, this was towards the end of my undergraduate studies. And she was like, oh, that's really competitive. Maybe you should try teaching instead. And write all my classmates. But I think that's sort of like people sort of try to tell you to manage your expectations. And I think with Carleen, I think she's just such a wonderful example of the fact that, you know, she blazed her own trail. Um, and then she had, um, you know, she moved to Paris. She wrote this very experimental novel, like The Format essentially it's this breakdown of this relationship or it's like a lot of impassioned dialogue. Like They're arguing for the vast majority of the piece and it's a non-linear narrative. So uh, she's writing in a completely different way, an experimental way, and basically occupying a sort of corner of the world of literary fiction that we don't typically see black women wading into. And so when I first read about her, I think it was a New York Times story, I read the novel because I was like, her story is so fascinating. Let me read the novel because the novel sounds riveting. And it was just one of those books that stuck with me. And I was like, it was hard to find it. Like I had to really hunt to track it down. But I think in the same way that um, Zora Neale Hurston was a brilliant writer and then kind of faded to obscurity. And then you had Alice Walker who reminded the world, like her writing, it needs to be remembered. It needs to be read. It needs to be sort of out there. Now, and Hatcher-Polite was not nearly as prolific as Dora Neale Hurston, but I think this is like one of those books that people have forgotten about, and I just think it's worth people being aware of and, and reading and, and knowing. So it wasn't necessarily the themes itself, although I think, you know, it's a great novel. I mean, it's quite a challenging one, and that's why I also respect it. What I was going to say, yeah, this experimental
2: non-linear style, you know, this dense dialect as well. Are you often drawn to more experimental piece of literature out of you know curiosity
0: I not always I mean I, I think it's much harder to take complex ideas and make them accessible to people that's just tends to be what I'm most interested in because also I think my work in the more sort of commercial media space that's always what I'm that's what it thinking is. through but I think one of the other books I've got on the list Tony Morrison' the Bluest Eye I think you know that was a really it was a real economical book quite short. But she took these really complex notions around things like, um, patriarchy and colorism and, but she made it accessible. You know, I think the first time I read it, I was maybe 12 years old. I can't, you know, you could read it a certain age and understand it and, and pull something away from it. I think Bell Hooks does it really, you know, again, she made these really complex ideas really accessible to the point where like a whole world on TikTok, yeah, can, you know, have bite size as well. Yeah. But I, I think I'm a, an omnivore, really. I just, if it's good, I'll and sit down and I'll enjoy it. I love that description
2: of the types of books that you're like, I'm an omnivore for it. <laughs> this sort of blend of sharp, cultural observation or thorny, hard to describe issues with then the relatable stories that we've seen in Bell Hooks, that we see in The Flagellants. It's something that you have to employ as a journalist, but also in, in your work. Do you feel that that's something you have to do in order to include the polemic to make something relatable or personal somehow? Is it a skill that comes naturally to you or something you've had to work on?
0: I think it kind of more naturally to me to write in an accessible way than an experimental way, mainly because I have the most experience at it, having, you know, spent most of my working life writing for consumer media titles where you're writing for really big, large audiences. Although, you know, I have huge amounts of respect for... Writers, like things like magical realism or you know, things that are more experimental. I, I wish I could write in that way. You know, sometimes I like experiment in my journals and things like that. I have huge admiration for it just because I feel like my work in life is quite far away from that. Um, but I think there's real value in, in being able to sort of disseminate your work kind of far and wide. I remember talking to Barbara Kruger, who did these a series of covers for us at Elle, and, you know, she is someone who I've always regarded as a real hero. I've always loved her work. And I feel like she's such a, um, her influence on feminism is so um, real. Like, you know, in terms of, you know, the work that she did in the aftermath of the undoing of Roe v. Wade stateside, it was Barbara Kruger's um, Your Body is a Battlefield, Battleground, um, being shared or reshared. her work is a really Christian. But I was talking to her and she was saying that she actually really, even though she is of the art world, that there's a part of her that's quite pop. Like she likes the fact that you know she wants her message to spread. She wants people to see it and understand it. Like she's challenging people, but it's it's important to her that it's seen. Like she wants her work to be seen. For me, when I'm writing or editing, like I do want my work to reach large groups of people. I'm not necessarily that person who wants it to just be consumed by like a really small select few.
1: Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether shaken in a cocktail, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Check out baileys.com for our favourite Bailey's recipes. Hi, I'm Sam Baker and welcome to The Shift. The podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. I started the shift because I was so tired of the absence of older women's voices. Where had all the women over 40 gone? I mean, seriously, if you want to walk about in your pyjamas for the rest of your life, we're invisible. Each episode, I speak to an inspiring woman about her shift. I feel very strong and think I genuinely don't care what anybody thinks of me. Join me every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts.
2: The third book he brought today has been consumed by a lot of people, this is Against Interpretation by Susan Sontag. It's not the first time it's been brought to the podcast, and it won't be the last, but it's such an important piece of work. The debut collection of written works consisting of articles published in the magazines Partisan Review, New York Review of Books, Commentary, of The Nation, and others over the period 1962 to 1965. Now, these essays, I mentioned essays before, they delve into a wide variety of cultural disciplines, which have been seminal to modern culture and academic discourse over the 50 years since their publication and still provoke animated intellectual discussion to this day, which is what we're having now. Um, tell us about why you chose this book.
0: I chose it because it makes me think of that period in New York when I first started working in media and I began to sort of really cultivate my own sense of, likes and dislikes as a young, rising journalist. And, you know, people love to name-drop Susan Sontag and Joan Didion. Like, there are certain writers who other editors love to read and talk about. I think with Susan, it was this book, specifically, Notes on Camp, that really made me realize how much I enjoy the essay. The writing, like, how rigorous it was. Um, And how she, it was really something that um, spoke to the time. I think she really kind of normalized and popularized that idea of camp. It was something that the idea of it was really widespread, but she was the the first to sort of really kind of give it that critical eye and pull it all together and make it make sense in this piece of uh, cultural commentary and analysis. And I thought it was, and it was really timeless in a way i read it and i just thought it was amazing i loved it and i it just made me want to read more writing like that but also it's it inspired like a met gala a few years ago i think it's it has its impact is is really quite interesting so i think it was responding to a culture but then at the same time i think it kind of influenced culture at the same time so no actually and i wonder this a lot how do you strike the
2: balance in in your work between some of the hard-hitting pieces that are explored in in Elle and then the more style-focused articles because of course it's a a fashion magazine but there are some issues that you've covered that you must be so proud to in public.
0: yeah so I think Elle is one of those brands that I love because it has such an incredibly rich history of publishing women authors and writers and when I first started the role I spent a lot of time looking at the archival issues here in the UK and in France and I love seeing those early issues back in the 80s and the 90s where Jeanette Winterson would have a cover line next to a fashion line and next to a beauty line so you know I think Elle is as a brand has always really prioritized the writing. The writing doesn't come second to the fashion and beauty it's all equally important and that for me is a real joy and a privilege to be able to pick up the phone and call some of my favorite writers and authors and they'll happily contribute to the issues. And then that can sit and coexist with, you know, a fashion shoot or a fashion story because we can, you know, be interested in all these things. And um, I think that is the joy of L. you know, it, it really doesn't try to dumb anything down, but at the same time it doesn't demand that anyone makes any apologies for, Liking what they like and loving what they love. I think it's a really dated, archaic way of thinking that you can't be a serious minded woman and not enjoy the new Barbie film or, you know, as a new drop at Zara or like that luxury bag that you've been hunting down that you found in Netta Forte. I think we can do all these things at the same time. And so th- that is what I love most about, you know, being an L that we can give you a deeper dive with a long read and look at, you know, the state of like women's reproductive autonomy and the aftermath of Roe v. Wade, what that mean might mean for women here in the UK, for instance, or we can just give you a really light and fun trend report and in the form of an A to Z, or we can look at the, um, the current cost of living crisis year and the ways in which that's impacting our lives as women and our aspirations and our abilities to, climb the property ladder or put away money or things like that you know while at the same time giving you a, a light and fun piece of the front of thought about like the return of the martini and while we're all and so sweet
2: this is why i've loved it ever since i was a little girl i've looked at it as something very aspirational because it showed me i don't just have the capacity to be anything but i have the capacity to be everything yeah and that means the world and, and you were given the global leader of change award as well by the first stash what do
0: awards like that mean to you? That was a total surprise. So that, it was just like a nice, a nice moment. I felt really humbled by it. And um yeah, I was quite blown away by it. And so even now thinking back on it, I'm just, you know, I do feel just like deeply honored to have been recognized in that way. in the first place, I'm not one of those people, you have some people who are just like, always oh, like, you know, you look at the by and they have like loads of awards and that sort of thing. I'm not that kind of. I don't have that history, but the ones that I that won just, you know, mean a lot. I think awards are, and those kinds of accolades and lists and that sort of thing, I don't necessarily put huge amounts in it and that I don't necessarily seek it out or feel like it's something that I have to have. But when it comes, when there's recognition in that form, I think it's like, you know, it's a really beautiful thing and a really humbling thing. And, you know, something that I don't take for granted.
2: Kenny, full of book today, we have to mention it. So important. It's Telling Morrison with The Bluest Eye. This is Nobel Prize winning Tony Morrison's debut novel, and it follows Percola Breedlove, a child who every night prays for blonde hair and blue eyes so that she will be as beautiful and beloved as the privileged white children she goes to school with. This is a powerful interrogation of what it means to conform to an idea of beauty and asks vital questions about race, class, and gender. It has always struck a chord with me. I remember being probably about six years old and for my mum to in the bath to scrub the brown off me because I didn't think that was beautiful and I didn't think it was valid. And this book was an important one to read at a young age, as you said that you did. When did you read this book and, and how has Toni Morrison influenced you?
0: I read it and I, I, I would have been around the age of the protagonist, Piccola. Mm-hmm. I think it was 12, to be honest, but she's 11 in the book. I was around that age. I used to love my local library. That was fun for me. After school, I used to, I mean, I was in ballet class and I played tennis and all these activities. But one of my favorite things to do was to go to the library, me and my girlfriend sometimes. We would sit in the back of the library and just read books. And so, you know, I was reading like Judy Bloom, like all those authors who you would expect a girl of that age to read. But then I got a hold of The Bluest Eye and I think it was a friend who recommended it. She'd read it first. And it for us... At that age, Bricola's story of, um, number one, this sense of uh, how her sense of girlhood was impacted by these beauty standards, but also the abuse, the sexual abuse that she underwent. I mean, it was it was unlike anything that I had read before. That was my gateway to Toni Morrison. And my love for her has grown as my life has evolved and my understanding of who she was as an, as an author and woman. Grown and evolved, but she's just one of those people I'm obsessed with. Um, and I think the bluest eye it, it was just again, at this quite short, novel really quite economical, but really powerful. And there was so much packed in it. I think we all have those experiences with colorism or like essentially like coming up against like standards and images of beauty that we don't necessarily match, and then being put in a position where we're feeling like we're lesser than. Um, I think. Women of all backgrounds have experienced that at some state, whether it's, you know, our skin tone or our hair texture or our shape and size or that sort of thing. I thought it was a powerful story in that this was a novel that centered a Black girl, a child, which we don't necessarily see much of or I didn't see much of. So that struck me. But also, I think, you know, it was a a story that was really particular to Pecola but in a way also kind of really universal. Because I think when you look at Toni Morrison's, like all the, you know, the sort of cross-section of readers and lives that she has touched, I think it really, you know, it spans so many. But I think this book is definitely like the gateway for so many people, just because it's a powerful and resonant story. So for me, growing up in the South, where there is definitely that sense of, you know, the legacy of the brown paper bag rule, Like, you know, if you're darker than a brown paper bag, you're less desirable. Or all of that was definitely in my environment. It was around me. I think my parents just did a really good job of shielding me from that. Like, but it was definitely around. So reading it, that was my first time actually reading something that confronted it head on. So I think it was a very memorable read for me. I mean, clearly, because you fast forward
2: and in your book, you talk about the disparity between Black women being more visible and publicly celebrated than ever, but then also the day-to-day struggle that many Black women experience. What inspired you to write about this and to keep writing about this?
0: First of all, I wanted to write about these experiences and I wanted to do it on my own terms rather than being at a magazine and trying to pitch these stories and then having to adapt it for, uh, you know, the audience of whatever that title was. I wanted to be able to write and center Black womanhood and, and write it for an audience that would span many, but, you know, but centering black women. But also I was writing what I wanted to read. Like I was trying to make sense of what I was witnessing and experiencing. And um again, drawing on my love of essays and having talked it through with my agent, I just felt like this was the best format for this kind of exercise. And so I wanted to try to make sense of what I was seeing and experiencing while at the same time I'd been itching to, to write about this and get it out there. And it just, I think it, it had to be a book rather than like a series of articles published for a range of magazines and websites and things like that.
2: Was there a feeling of, of your voice being able to authentically, truly cut through?
0: I guess in, in terms of the, the fact that there was an element of memoir in there, like I was drawing from some of my own experiences, that, you know, there were bits in it that were deeply personal. So I am used to studying my voice as a writer and an editor in a specific kind of way whereas this one felt much more personal than some of the work that I'd done in the past and so in a way it felt very I feel like empowering sometimes sounds like a naff word but in a way it felt quite empowering but then in other ways it was terrifying often the two go hand in hand though (laughs) you know
2: Uh, your fifth Shelfie book now, Kenya, is Creative Visualization by Shakti Kalane. This classic guide teaches visualization methods that are practical and easy to incorporate into daily life, helping readers use the power of their imaginations to create what they want in their lives, whether it's to change negative habits or improve self-esteem, reach career goals, or experience deep relaxation. How
0: can we fit this? How can we add this at the, at the end of your list? Because it's a little bit different. I think because it's one of those books that has um has also stayed with me in my adult life. So I grew up in the Bible Belt in Virginia. So there's very much the um in the environment this idea of self optimization, but very much self optimization through religion. Like you know, you're constantly working to you know for the greater good or to be a better person or that sort of thing. But also, organized religion comes with a lot of problems. It can often alienate entire groups of people. It's a complicated thorny space so also I think in terms of my growth growing into my own sense of selfhood and as a woman and all of that a lot of that was like wrestling with and coming to terms with my own feelings about religion having grown up you know in the, uh, the thick of it, is. and so as an adult like basically growing or seeking out reading and um, educating myself about various forms of religion and what's out there Buddhism and things like that and then the world of self help where you have like an abundance of different um, theories and models and like it's such a big economy, the business of self-help. I, I um, encountered creative visualization through another editor and I read it and I just quite simply like the the practice of being much more conscious of the narratives that we tell ourselves in our heads. Because oftentimes we don't even realize it, but that we're we're telling ourselves messages all day long and I think just the book does a really good job of creating that awareness of how often our thoughts can spin into it can be into negative territory because I do deeply believe that our thoughts matter like I really believe in the power of the vision we create for ourselves like you know Carleen Hasher polite you know had a vision for herself and then she lived quite an unconventional life you know, when you look at, you know, the, the experience of a lot of her peers and contemporaries at the time, I think the life she lived is, was probably not the average. And so I think we have these these visions for ourselves. And I think there's real power and making sure the feedback loop that you have in your head is one that is ultimately kind of keeping you in place of promise and possibility. Not to say that we need to sort of Pollyanna life, and like sugarcoat things and, and block out the, the realities or like when we're going through tough times and things like that. But I think there is a, a real power and a sort of a heightened consciousness of our thoughts and our thinking and how that can impact our lives, the way that we perceive reality, but also the ways that we encounter other people, the way we make ourselves feel. There's just, you know, oftentimes there's a talk about the way that we make other people feel, but I think there's also the way that we make ourselves feel about you know, like when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night, like it's important to be conscious of how we regard ourselves, you know, that that internal thinking, like what that process looks like. And so I think she does a really great job of presenting a really strong and valid case for being kinder to yourself and also being more intentional in the way that we regard ourselves and, and the the desires that we have for our lives and how we achieve them. I've not read this
2: book, but I've been practicing manifestation, visualization, mindfulness, being kinder to myself and others, and um, gratitude, practicing gratitude. I said to my mum the other day that I was doing all this, she's like, oh, so you're praying? And I was like, well, I guess so, but it's not necessarily to a god, but I do believe in a god of all things. Like the the universe is is magical, and what is that if, yeah. not, if not a god? Given your religious background,
0: what is being surrounded by religion growing
2: up, What does spirituality mean to you?
0: I think it's so funny what your mom said, because I think printing is (laughs) like a kind of form of like, you know, creative visualization or all this. It's in practice, a lot of it, in essence, you know, all these different things do, they're, you know, remarkably similar in a lot of ways. For me, spirituality right now, I think at a time when um, we are just constantly being bombarded with Mm -hmm. bad news all the time, like the scrolls, just prioritize things that make us stop. And oftentimes, they're really shocking things or really devastating things. I mean, even the orcas and the dolphins have had it. I keep being served all this news about the orcas who keep slamming themselves into these boats and like dolphins who are now attacking people. I'm like, we can't even just have like fun, nice, like aquatic life. Um, But I think there's so much anger out there in terms of like social media and everything. So for me, spirituality, I mean, words that come to mind are like love, like a sense of grounded for self but also for community I think in terms of the greater good I think sometimes we especially like amidst the wellness boom sometimes we can become so focused on ourselves and the individuals we forget the need of the greater good and the power of like you know what we can do collectively and communities with each other because I think we need to be thinking more along those lines right now Uh, and also with that in mind, this book it advocates deep relaxation how do you slick jump? You know, I try to be consistent with my meditation. It can be hard sometimes. Can, sometimes you feel like you can really prioritize but so many things when you're juggling many balls. But for me, I love um, uh, things like reformer Pilates, you know, having a nice book, being outside a lot, you know, when the weather is great, you know, finding an open body of water. I think because I grew up in a beach town, like my happy place, Tends to involve water, like going by the sea or a long hot bath or anything that involves water, like generally makes me happy. And it tends to, I find, to be really calming. That's where I sort of find like my sense of calm. And then also sometimes just at night, you know, when everyone's asleep, like just being able to write and have like a nice glass of wine or like a hot soak and like a good book and that sort of thing. Or conversely, just having a really loud and rowdy night with my girlfriend as well, I think is like a really joyful thing. Like just having really like joyful moments. Like I love laughter, like loud, loud, rowdy, obnoxious laughter as well. I do want to ask you just quickly before before we wrap
2: up. You, you're the founder of Room Mentoring, which advocates greater diversity within the fashion industry by supporting and then providing a network for new talent. I feel like some of the things you said although they're about you know relaxing on a personal level it's good advice because that perspective and that balance is also what's going to embolden us and empower us um but I'd love to know overall for for that new talent for anyone listening to this who's looking at potentially a career like
0: yours what would be your advice um I think my advice would be to be clear in your vision for yourself and if it is not clear be kind to yourself that's okay too but just to remain open to the possibilities. Like, you know, our lives can take these twists and turns or you can stay on a dedicated path and stay at a course. But I think just um, allowing ourselves to dream and and not necessarily basically rejecting any kind of boxing in that that people might try to impose on them. I think um, we're, we're always being told to sort of manage our expectations of what we can do and what we can achieve in many ways and so I, I really try to encourage young people to to really hold on to these limitless possibilities that they have and not try to you know break out of any sort of patterns of self-limiting belief, which can be so easy to sink into. Well
2: we've ended on creative visualization but we've gone on such a journey through literature so just finally you, Kenny if you had to pick one book out of the five that you've bought today as a favorite which ought would be a one?
0: I'll say just because it's sitting right next to me, all about love, by bell hooks, because I think that's the one that I've revisited the most in the past few years. But it's hard. It's an impossible term. Uh, yeah, it's it's actually, I mean, it's
2: it's quite bad of us, as we love books, those big book heads, to make you choose five. When we all know that there are hundreds of books that make up the woman, um, but it's been amazing to hear about how these five have shaped you and to year about your life came in. And maybe if we can get you back, you can, you can bring another five. Great, thank you so much, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having
1: me. I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.